Hello and welcome to 100 Campaigns That Changed the World. Uh, my interview today is with Guy Hewitt. Uh, Guy's a, a leading or was a leading figure in the Windrush campaign. Um, now, the Windrush scandal, which precipitated the campaign, surfaced in the uh, public eye in uh, 2018 when it emerged that many of the Caribbean immigrants who had arrived before 1973 were being wrongly deported or threatened with deportation by the British state. There was a groundswell of opinion and voices raised against this policy and Guy was involved centrally in the campaign that emerged out of it as a kind of convener of that campaign. And he was well placed, although maybe a bit unusually placed, as Barbados High Commissioner to the UK, uh, to lead the campaign and help bring different constituencies together and try and get uh, the British government to take action and eventually start to provide some compensation. Although, as you'll hear, that's still a work in progress. Guy was not a career diplomat. In fact, he's currently parish priest at the Diocese of Southeast Florida. Um, and as you'll hear from the podcast, he says that his sort of heterodox background may have helped him push things forward on a number of fronts. Uh, it certainly helped him think out of the diplomatic box, as it were. Uh, I should just say that this is recorded on Skype, this interview, and so the sound is not brilliant, I'm afraid, but I think you can in fact hear Guy pretty well. Um, and also just to mention, there is a interesting take on this story on, on another podcast called The Tip-Off, which which is an interview with Amelia Gentleman, who you'll hear about, who's the Guardian journalist who broke the story. So you can hear about how it all started from a journalistic point of view. So I think that's it. Enjoy the interview. Hello and welcome to 100 Campaigns That Changed the World. I am with Guy Hewitt, who's on the line with me on Skype. Um, welcome, Guy. Um, now, Guy, uh, we could just start with um, perhaps uh, just in a few words, if, in your own words, how, how did the issue um, of the Windrush uh, campaign come to light? How did the issues around the campaign come to light? Well, good morning, Stephen. Good morning, listeners. Um, we, the Windrush issue, in a sense, evolved over a few years. And if I can give some background, in my role, in my former role as a High Commissioner from Bar for Barbados to the United Kingdom and the High Commissioner for St. Kitts and Nevis to the, the United Kingdom, we were both getting reports, anecdotal reports, about people being persecuted. And this is going back to 2014, going back to 2016. But we raised this with the UK government. And we were assured that these must have been, at best, bureaucratic anomalies. And I look back, in a sense, and wonder how we were that naive to have just taken their word for it. But I, I suspected it was that we didn't want to presume that the United Kingdom would do anything untoward or unjust just towards West Indians 
um, in the UK, having given such a long, um, a long and outstanding service to the country from the post-war era. But it was not until 2017 that Amelia Gentleman, um, writing in The Guardian, started to pick up this issue. She had been contacted by uh, uh, immigration NGO, and the, attend and the matter was brought to her attention. She began to investigate it. And the more she dug, the more she unearthed that, that there was a seemingly this systematic persecution of elderly West Indians who had come to the UK at the invitation of the UK government in the post-war era, but who had not because they came when their countries were colonies, um, ever thought they were anything other than British. They lived here, they went to school here, they paid taxes here. So to found themselves confronted by this, this accusation of not being legal and being treated as illegal immigrants was incomprehensible to them. And when she investigated it, she started to reveal quite how extensive the situation was. This this was towards the end of 20 October towards the end of 2017, and then the Migration Observatory, which is the center at the University of Oxford, highlighted that there could be thousands of people who could have been affected simply because they had not got their status regularized prior to 1971, when the legislation was changed not giving persons from um, the former British Empire, members of the former British colonies, the right to reside in the United Kingdom. Right. And, and so you, you moved quite quickly, or the campaign sort of got going quite quickly from that point on, it seems to me anyway. Um, so you, you describe in your reflections on this, um, you know, sort of a sort of leading group of, of, of players um, and then, in, if you like, and then a wider coalition. How yeah. did you come to sort of form that structure? How was it, did it? How did it sort of take shape? Well, in a sense, I found myself very much in the the centre of this role, unexpectedly. But in a sense, I was honoured to have been able to play a critical role to make sure, or to try to make sure that justice was secured for these elderly West Indians, although the, the, the debate, unfortunately, and the struggle continues now, but we can get to that later on. But what I was able to do was to get together with the High Commissioner for St. Kitts Nevis, um, two parliamentarians, Lord Oosley, who is a member of the House of Lords and originally from the West Indies, um, David Lammy, who is of West Indian parentage, and then some journalists, Amelia Gentleman and Gary Young, and along with Satbir Singh and Omar Khan, who are members of civil society and work on issues of race and immigration. We came together and really tried to get a sense of the issue and to coordinate a strategy on how we could bring together the kind of pressure to bear on the UK government to make this happen. Um, at the time, we didn't expect 
to get the kind of results that we did. But we, it was obvious that the issue was one that caught the intention of many different stakeholders, of the public at large, and within a short period of time over in April 2018, a lot was accomplished in terms of bringing it to, to the fore and getting the government's attention, the government's apology, and the government's commitment to resolve this issue. Did you, I mean, can you say a bit more about how you were structured and you had a formal structure? Do you meet every day, every week? How, how are you called? Well, well, we were meeting informally as a group. And in a sense, I played, I, I found myself playing a coordinating role simply because I felt that this was something I was there in the UK to accomplish. And if I can kind of just branch off and, and give that context, I found myself in my 40s, given, been given this great honor of representing Barbados as its High Commissioner uh, Ambassador effectively in the UK. Um, I was not a, a career diplomat. I didn't expect to have been given this assignment. And honestly, I felt puzzled um, in uh, the onset of why I was being offered the opportunity to really get to the pinnacle of the diplomatic world, which is what service in London um, is considered. For me, it was not just a career honor, but it, it was personally significant because I am of Commonwealth extraction. My parents met in the UK. I was born in London. So I was Barbados's first London-born High Commissioner. And it meant that I was, I was able to connect with the diaspora and I was able to connect with the Windrush issue because I felt that this could have been my parents or any one of their friends who would have been subject to, to this injustice, to the, the threat of deportation, to de detention, the loss of benefits, to, to, the, to the devastation of life of people who did not deserve it at the time. And so I, I found myself there, um, as I said, as a non-diplomat um, or non-career diplomat, really trying to work out how to address this issue. And, and what may have been relevant for me, because I, I, didn't, I didn't see myself within a, a public servant or diplomatic space, I was not waiting on instructions for capitals. I saw that this, this matter needed attention, and I guess I had the audacity of courage to act on it. So what I tried to do was to reach out to this coalition of the willing, as I mentioned before, and then we started to coordinate with other groups. Um, we started to coordinate with the Caribbean High Commissioners to get all of the diplomatic missions from the, the, the Caribbean on board and engaged. We engaged the civil society groups, the Runnymede Trust, the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants, the Praxis Community Polity, um, Projects, and others, including the Church of England, where I recognize, although they have recently apologized for, for their institutional racism, I have to commend them and other faith-based organizations for the support they give to the cause. I personally reached out to the Caribbean Student Associations 
at the universities across the UK to try to mobilize support from students to make them aware of the issue, to make them aware of the importance of them giving voice. And then we met with parliamentarians at Westminster with the Home Affairs Committee, we engaged the Foreign Affairs Committee, and then a number of all um, parliamentary groups. Um, they have all party groups for the Caribbean, for the Commonwealth, for human rights, for migration, for race. So, 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 yeah. so Guy, it was, it was quite a formidable and wide-ranging um, you know, set of actors, yes. you know, and, and from different parts, drawn from different parts of society, you know, you've yeah. got... You, you know, you've got all the bases covered there, you might say, you know, you've got yes. the media, you've got civil society, you've got government, you've got parliamentarians. Yeah. Uh, sort of faced with that, that range of um, opinion and, 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 and the, you know, fair to say, sort of righteous um, anger that there must have been amongst some of the communities. Yes. The government sort of didn't respond initially or didn't respond or at least seemed to be delaying responding is that right what well was, yes what i mean your, yeah, when, yeah what was your, when, how did you yeah go ahead okay if i can give you this what we realized is in a number of conversations at the time with the then foreign secretary the the current prime minister boris johnson i tried to get his attention on the matter and he was very courteous um, to listen, but we realized we were not getting the message across. We were not getting the government to engage the issue. Um, the Foreign Office was trying through junior ministers to really kick the, the issue down, down um, the road. And we realized, though, that there was a unique opportunity in April 20, 2018, when the, the UK government would have been hosting the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting um, in London. It would have been the biggest gathering of world leaders in the UK ever. The UK was going to assume the role of the Commonwealth. And we saw this as an opportunity for them to affirm the Commonwealth's commitment or the UK's commitment to the Commonwealth, to the protection of citizens and its reputation of fair play that the UK has always championed around the world. We had from previous um, experience recognized that it's sometimes only, only when you make things into a public issue that you almost have to shame governments into acting. And because I had an NGO background and, and an affinity with what people call guerrilla diplomacy, I, I saw the opportunity to bring together um, or to create a perfect storm around this heads of government meeting in 2018 to force the government to act. And what we sorry, did sorry, was can, plan sorry, a strategy around you, that. Sorry, Guy, yeah. I just want to ask you about that. So, because it's an interesting point, I think. And um, how quickly did you sort of realize that this wasn't an issue that was going to be solved behind the, simply behind the scenes? And would you have been satisfied, uh, you know, if they'd made, if you'd made progress behind the scenes, or were you always, yes, did you yes. always feel destined to go public with it? No, no, that was that was really the consequence of not getting the government's attention. We had tried through um, bilateral discussions. We had tried through the meetings with the Foreign Office as the Caribbean diplomats to get this issue addressed. 
and we kept getting delays, we kept getting assurances it was not happening, that these were still anomalies, although we realized that given the number and given the severity of it, this had to have been something more systematic, something that was pushed through in, in policy. And as the Guardian newspaper kept reporting on the number of instances, on the problems people were having, we realized that this was something that the government was not willing to push act on. We understood the politics of this, that, that immigration and migration had become a very a highly political issue in the UK. Brexit was a consequence of that. And therefore, we, we felt the only way that we were going to get this resolved, and given that this was not just a technical matter, or um, but the real lives were involved in it, we had to act, and we had to act urgently. So the, the government initially said that they didn't want to... They didn't want to sort of move forward on it. They wanted to kick it essentially down yeah. the side of that Commonwealth Heads of Government so, meeting. They, yes, they tried to stall. There were a number of different things. As I said, first they tried to say this wasn't an issue. Then they tried to say it wasn't a big issue. And then they said, well, we are looking into the issue. But we knew that if we allowed the Heads of Government's meeting to pass us, we would have lost a unique opportunity to get this addressed. So what we what we conveyed to the Foreign Office was that we would be briefing our governments to the urgency of this matter, that it required their attention because these were Caribbean-born persons, although they left before many of these countries became independent and therefore they might have not been citizens. They were of Caribbean extraction and we tried to get the government's commitment to take up this issue and therefore, we, we work to make sure going into the heads of government meeting seven days before that we would engage the public at large through a press briefing to bring attention to this issue. Um, do you feel that the government sort of underestimated the campaign at this point? Yes, they did. They, they really did. Um, I think there were a, a number of things, as, as I realized at the time, there, there was a whole, the whole incursion on, in Syria was happening at that time. And I think both the, the government, uh, the government, the UK government was very much focused on that. But they also thought that this probably was going to be a 24-hour news, news fad and it would probably pass, pass on quickly. But what they hadn't recognized is that there was... A, a serious commitment on behalf of these members of the coalition to get things done. And when we launched the, the press briefing, which, as I said, happened in the early part of May before the heads of government's meeting, that coincided with a number of other things that took place to galvanize public support. We were able to get the media's attention. And I think because we recognize that many of these persons were were mature elderly West Indians who had given a life of service in the UK. And I must recognize that there were some of them who came out and were willing to be visible faces and voices to the crisis. The press got a real sense of the humanitarian 
um, plight of the people, and they took it up. It became front page, it became headline news within a short period of time. The press were equally outraged by the fact that when the Caribbean governments had asked for a meeting with Prime Minister May, she had indicated that her schedule was already full and she couldn't meet with them. They thought that it was a slight and a dismissal of, of the matter. And then there were other things that happened. Um, Patrick Vernon, who is a civil society campaigner, launched a parliamentary petition that took off and within 10 days, 100,000 signatures were secure. David Lamy got 140 parliamentary signatures to a letter to the um, Prime Minister calling for an injustice. The Church of England, the bishops wrote in the, the newspapers asking for the government to address this. And more significantly, through our coordination or corresponding with the, the Council of Europe, the European Union picked this up as a serious concern about how European citizens would be treated post-Brexit. And I think that really got the UK government's attention. But I would say on all fronts, in the press, from people writing in and supporting the parliamentary um, petition, from parliamentarians, from the churches, um, from the European Union, there was that coming together as I say, almost like a perfect storm that overwhelmed the government and forced them, really forced them to give attention and take action to on this issue. Right. Uh, we're just going to stop uh, for a short break. We'll be back in a few moments. Okay, we're back uh, with Guy Hewitt. Um, Guy, we were talking about the sort of, if you like, the tipping point in the campaign where the government really had to sit up and take notice and take action, as you said. Um, did you feel that there were any allies in the government, uh, in you know, either civil servants or, or politicians that you could that you could work with, or that that would 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 sort of more friendly to your position? There were amongst. Some of the parliamentarians, I think generally, and, and I, it's important to point out that a lot of people did not recognize the magnitude of this situation. Yes, it was happening in the Home Office. Yes, it was, in a sense, being reported in the press. But people kept thinking um, in the public that, that this was still an anomaly. And when everything, in a sense, came together... And, and the story really broke in in the middle of August 20, sorry the middle of April 2018. That's when it it really caught people's attention. We were getting um, informal support in a sense on engagements with some people supporting the the Conservative Party MPs within um, within the party and, and within parliament. But the government itself, as I said, I think 
felt that, and if you have to, you have to appreciate at the time that this issue was triggered by Theresa May in her previous role as Home Secretary. So it was really a consequence of the, the actions and her policies about creating a hostile environment for illegal immigrants that the West Indians got caught up in. And unfortunately, the civil servants had recognized this. They had briefed the Home Office at the time that there were going to be these consequential um, impacts on innocent people, but it was pushed through. And it was pushed through largely, as I said, because I believe that Theresa May at the time saw immigration as her way of get gaining access to the leadership of the party and to, to Downing Street and, and basically pursued it as a political agenda. Um, what we were able to do is once it, the matter broke, we were able to get the engagement of the then Home Secretary, Amber Rudge. And, and to be fair to her, she was very accommodating. She met with myself. She met with my colleagues. She made the commitment to try to resolve the issue. But regrettably, through information she provided to the Home Affairs Committee, um, she was forced to resign simply because she had misled Parliament um, and gave them the wrong information. But at that time, we felt that we had got her engagement and that the government had finally understood what the situation was and was willing to put things um, in place to address it. The Home Affairs um, put together um, a task force, a Windrush task force, and we got a team who were committed to try to address this. And after that, although there were teething problems and a number of hiccups, we started to see some action. People started to get their status regularized. People got, got British citizenship as the government committed to. But it was really the consequence of the pressure that was brought to bear by this coalition of the willing to try to get justice for these West Indians in the UK. Yes, and, it, and, it, and it, um, it's in some ways this sort of follows a narrative of, of as you say, a perfect storm, almost like a perfect campaign. But there must have been times in which you thought that, you know, things were going backwards or indeed where the coalition that you put together had disagreements. Were, were there any bumps in the road that you... you, you could uh, I, I wouldn't... No, actually, the thing about it, and, and without... We really felt that, that there was... The hand of providence was with us because of how well things came together. In these situations, normally, as you say, there are pitfalls, there are setbacks, there are disagreements, but everyone was committed and united on the need to do it. There were a few technical issues. When the um, parliamentary petition was written by Patrick Vernon, it was talking about an amnesty. And some of us felt that did not adequately reflect the situation because asking for an amnesty suggested that people were not entitled to be there, that they yeah. had done something wrong, that we, they, we were asking the government to give them favorable consideration when we were just simply asking the government to give them their rights. Um, so from that point of view, there were some small things 
that were not perfectly aligned, but we recognize that in every in life, in all campaigns, things never come together perfectly, but we were willing to go forward and we were willing to work together to make this to make this happen. And and I must yeah. Sorry. So you talk about in your reflection the role that Jamaica was perhaps the one of the, of the, of yes, the Caribbean you know, countries that were slightly, yeah, slightly lagging. Now, one of the things that we had the challenge with was the fact that the Caribbean high commissions were somewhat wary of how far they could, how far they could take this issue. Um, we had sought guidance from capitals. It is what diplomats normally do when issues emerge. Um, we had not gotten um, the engagement of our capitals. We had sought the, the, a statement from the Caribbean community, CARICOM, earlier in the year when they met in February 2018 to give us support for this. Um, and that was not forthcoming. But what, therefore, we had to do as diplomats was to take it upon ourselves to act on this matter. And, and to a certain extent, for the benefit of, of colleagues, former colleagues of mine who were career diplomats or more conservative, what had started out as really a campaign strategy was toned down to a press briefing in order to satisfy, I think, the requirements of traditional diplomacy for us not to be seen to be taking on um, a host government or a host country publicly. But we knew that we had to act. Within there, there was a challenge with Jamaica, um, and, and it happened for a number of reasons. The government of Jamaica, the, the ruling party in Jamaica is a sister party, of the Conservative Party. Um, Jamaica has been seeking um, bilateral assistance from the UK. Um, Jamaica is seeking bilateral programs from the UK in terms of the supplying of nurses and other, other staff. And I think because of that, they were not willing to press as hard or be as vocal as they should have been, in my opinion, simply because the largest constituency affected from the Caribbean were West, were Jamaicans. The next largest group were Barbadians, which is why I got so directly involved. And and we we were disappointed um, when we finally got the meeting with Prime Minister May at the time um, and got all of the Caribbean leaders together to meet with her to address this issue when we got her assurance that it was a priority. We were disappointed then to learn that the, there was a bilateral meeting prior to that with the Jamaican government, um, and that had not been shared with us, nor was there any, any um, attempt made to try to coordinate the Caribbean position with the Jamaican position. And I think that has been an unfortunate consequence and, and, and we see that playing out now, even with the recent deportations, that the government of Jamaica has not been as vocal as I feel it could have been and it needs to be to represent the interests of its citizens who are still be facing unjust treatment in the UK at the hands of the Home Office. Did you, did you come under any personal attack or, or pressure? Do you, did you at any time feel like you know, you were being got at? 
Um, in a sense, in a sense, yes. I mean, one of the things, and, and as I alluded to earlier, one of the great, I, we can say coincidences of life, or we can say um, one of the providential factors, was because I was born in the United Kingdom, it gave me a legitimacy that I don't, and a passion that I don't think my my other colleagues, um, for diplomatic colleagues, would have shared. When I spoke, I spoke not just as a diplomat who was representing the interests of his, um, West Indians or Barbadians abroad, but I I spoke as somebody who was of that migration and that invitation to the UK. And therefore, it gave me um, access and a, a certain, I would say, moral authority to speak to the matter. Also, because I am also um, an Anglican priest, was licensed um, within, well, had a, um, a permission to, to practice in the UK while I was there within the Church of England, I again had a certain moral authority to speak on it. So I found myself um, with a certain audacity of courage being able to lead this. And when the UK pushed back, because when this matter broke, the, the government tried through the Minister of Immigration to, to spin this as a myth as uh, a campaign that came from nowhere and was not linked to anything. And that gave me, I think, the, a sense of indignation. And I went on a, a, a press offensive, um, speaking to the television, the radio, the media, um, the, the newspapers, in order to really get the truth of this matter out. So, so I felt, in a sense, while there may have been attempts or desire to try to stifle what we were saying, I felt the the truth behind our cause and was not willing to, to stop until we had secured what we had set out, which was justice for these West Indians who had given a lifetime to the United Kingdom. Did you ever get any feedback or, or retrospectively hear from anyone close to the government about what it was that led to the change what you know was it was it just literally the embarrassment of the coverage that there was and the, and the media noise or do, do, you know well, could you pinpoint anything that that was the sort of key to the one change? of the things that emerged in conversation subsequently was that i don't think in the government there was an awareness of the extent of what had happened and i think that was really an ignorance is is no excuse i honestly think that that although this was a policy um and although the government said it was unintended uh, unintended consequence of their policy on illegal immigrants, and, and that has been challenged. I don't believe, or I don't want to believe, that they had an awareness of how many people had been affected and their lives devastated by this. People subsequently, or during and subsequent to, to the Winrush scandal, did speak to me and, and in a sense, affirm their commitment to make sure that all has will be done um, to make this make this situation to resolve the situation, but unfortunately, 
Unfortunately, and, and in today's press in 2020, the matter has not been resolved. The compensation is not being paid. There are people who are still struggling to get their situation, their, their status regularized. And unfortunately, um, I would say since my departure from the UK, um, my colleagues in the in the Caribbean diplomatic corps have not pushed this forward with the the strength that they would have, I think, simply because I was willing to work with and support anybody who was willing to fight. Um, and the traditional diplomats, I don't think, see that as their role in the, the, um, in the first instance. And as a consequence, the justice that people deserve and have been waiting on for some people ha- are, is still being denied. People have had their lives devastated. They have suffered untold hardships um, and they have still not yet been adequately compensated for their suffering. And that's a problem even up to today as we speak. Yeah, it it plays into a couple of other issues. One you've already mentioned, which is obviously the treatment of European citizens post-Brexit. But the second one, which is very live, and I don't know whether you or across this issue at the moment, Guy, but there, there's a lot of, um, uh, uh, quite a lot of media coverage about the, the government policy of uh, deporting convicted criminals to, you know, there's, there's a yes. flight think, to Jamaica yes. this yes. week. Um, yes. So that, Windrush has come up in the context of that again, and I think, you know, David Lammy's been very outspoken about, about that, and the sort of sweeping up of all sorts of people under this under this deportation law. So it does seem like the campaign can morph into different sort of fronts and, and it's still it is still live, but it as you say, it doesn't have the dynamism that it that it had. And and Steve, there one of the things that I, I pointed out um during the Commonwealth Heads of Governments meeting in 2018 The UK was trying to have a similar deportation policy with India. And the Indian government took a very different and much harder stance with the UK. And they said, look, these people who have been living in your country all these years are not problems that we have created for you. They have lived, they have been socialized, they have committed crimes because of your context. And therefore, the government of India said, we are not willing to accept them unless we are satisfied that they really belong back in uh, in, in India. And I think the, the government of Jamaica can take a tougher line with the UK government about accepting these persons because people cannot be deported without travel documents and it means that the country receiving them in this case jamaica would have to provide travel documents for people to board an aircraft so the government does have some latitude to be able to say to the uk we don't believe this is right it should not require um a court to say that this is unjust the jamaican government as the indian government said we would look at each deportation on a case-by-case basis and come to a determination whether we think this is appropriate. Um, But as I mentioned earlier, Jamaica has strong bilateral interests in cooperating with the United Kingdom. And as a consequence, I think they are 
they are unable to take the kind of principled positions that they would like to because trade and economic issues um, have muddied the water. Yes, as is often the case. Well, Guy, I think it's been a fascinating story to listen to and I think you, you've been a you know an interesting subject as well as an unusual sort of campaigner diplomat um so i just uh, would thank you so much for your time today um and uh, yes uh, it's been it's been really a privilege and thank you Stephen. it has been a privilege not just talking about this with you but really having been able to be there and be part of securing justice for people who deserved the love the respect the consideration of a country that they gave so much to so to those people, West Indians in the UK, who are still battling for justice, I keep, I will continue to pray and, and do whatever I can to support them in their, in their cause, which is justly deserved.